Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13 this morning. The baptism of the Holy Spirit had been predicted long ago. In fact, it was predicted over 500 years before Jesus was born. When God, through the prophet Joel, said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Later, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John the Baptist predicted that Jesus would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. In Luke 24, 49, not long before his death, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, the resurrected Jesus told his disciples, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, we are about to see that promise fulfilled. Let's read about it, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now where there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Let's pray. Lord, even godly Christian scholars disagree on the meaning of our passage this morning. I pray for discernment for everyone here to know whether my interpretation is what your word is actually teaching. And I pray that your people would be able to agree to disagree agreeably on this issue. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. The day of Pentecost was an exciting time for Jews. It occurred every year just 50 days after Passover and was like an annual harvest festival, not unlike our Thanksgiving holiday. People would bring a sample of their spring harvests to the temple as thanksgiving offerings to God. The story in Acts 2 takes place on one particular Pentecost festival, which occurred in either 30 or 33 AD. Since this was one of the three festivals Jews were required by the law of Moses to attend, Jerusalem was filled with Jews who had come to celebrate from all over the Roman Empire and beyond. According to verses 9 to 11, there were people from as far away as Rome in the west to Parthia in the east. Parthia was roughly modern-day Iran and was one of Rome's most feared enemies. 
People from across North Africa and from modern-day Turkey were also there. So Jerusalem was flooded with people and may have been as crowded as the Minnesota State Fair. Meanwhile, the believers were all together hiding out in some Jerusalem home. This home could be the same place that had the upper room in chapter 1, verse 13. But since it's unlikely that a home would have a room large enough to accommodate 120 people, it could be that they were meeting in a courtyard of a large home. Some homes of wealthy people in those days were built around a large open courtyard in the center. Now, we have no way of knowing, of course, but I can't help wondering if it could have been the home of most excellent Theophilus to whom the book of Acts was addressed and who was undoubtedly quite wealthy. While these 120 believers were sitting around in this home, verse 2 says they suddenly heard a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Now imagine being in a courtyard of someone's home when you suddenly hear what sounds like a tornado or a hurricane, only there's no wind. The sound not only filled the whole house, as it says in verse 2, but suddenly something that looked like little flames appeared and settled on each of the believers, both men and women, and they began to speak in languages they had never learned before. Verses 3 and 4 say, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, the word for tongues in the original had both a literal and figurative meaning. Literally, tongues just referred to the tongue like you have in your mouth. Figuratively, it means ordinary, everyday human languages. In Isaiah 5.24, however, the phrase tongues of fire is a Jewish figure of speech for flames. So they saw what looked like little flames descending on each of them, and they began to speak in other tongues or human languages that they had never learned. Meanwhile, a crowd was gathering, being drawn at first by what sounded like a violent wind coming from the area of the home where the believers had been hiding out. The crowd grew as the believers came out and began speaking to people in the language of their own home country, Parthia, Media, Elam, Egypt, Libya, Rome, and others. The crowd was amazed and perplexed. Verse 7, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? They could probably tell by the accent. Galileans had a distinct accent. When Sheila and I first moved to Tennessee many years ago, one of the first things my new neighbor said to me was, you ain't from around here, are you? He thought I was the one with the accent. Verse 8 says, Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Now notice that in verses 12 and 13, this phenomenon creates two groups. One group is cautiously open to further information. What does this mean, they ask? In my next sermon, Peter will stand up and tell the crowd precisely what it means. The other group is openly hostile and mocking. They've had too much wine, they said. The two groups see the same evidence, but draw different conclusions. It was the same with Jesus' ministry. Among the same people who saw his miracles, some said it was the work of God, while others said it must be the work of Satan. It was the same with the apostles' ministry. Even when they did miracles, some believed, while others rejected the message and often persecuted the believers for it. It's the same way in our day. It doesn't have, matter how much evidence you present. 
many people simply do not want to believe. And generally speaking, no amount of evidence will persuade those who do not want to believe. It is only the Holy Spirit who will change hearts. So let's go a bit deeper and ask some controversial questions. First, what are these tongues? Some pastors have said that the miracle of tongues was not a miracle of speech, but a miracle of hearing. Verse 6 says, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So according to this theory, the miracle was not that people spoke in languages they didn't know. The miracle was that people could understand languages they had never learned. I think this theory is simply a result of not reading the text carefully enough. Verse 4 said, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. The only reason people from Egypt, for example, heard some Galileans speaking Egyptian was because the Holy Spirit had enabled the disciples to speak Egyptian. It is also important to note that in Acts 2, at least, tongues was not just some kind of ecstatic utterances, but actual known human languages from ancient nations like Rome, Egypt, Libya, Crete, and others. 1 Corinthians 13, however, Paul says, Though I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. Our charismatic friends would say that their ecstatic utterances are the tongues of angels. Now, some Baptists may call these ecstatic utterances gibberish, but that's kind of a derogatory comment, so I will call them ecstatic utterances. So while most Baptists focus on Acts 2, where the text makes it very clear that tongues were actual known human languages, our charismatic friends focus on Acts or on 1 Corinthians 13 and assume that their ecstatic speech is the same as angel languages. But in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul may simply be using hyperbole, as if to say, even if I could speak in the language of angels, if there is any such thing, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. In other words, Paul is not necessarily saying that there is such a thing as angelic languages at all much less that ecstatic speech is an angelic language. I talked about this in the midweek Bible study recently, but I once read a book by a well-known charismatic megachurch pastor. He said there have been times in his church when someone speaks in tongues briefly and someone gets up and interprets for a long time. Or someone will speak just a few sentences in tongues and someone will interpret for the next several minutes. This charismatic pastor thinks that something phony is going on when this happens. On the other hand, this same pastor said that one time in his church, someone got up and began speaking in French. After the service, a visitor from France mentioned uh, the man who had spoken in French, and the pastor told him, I know that man very well. I know for a fact that he doesn't know a word of French. Now, if this story is true, and I have no reason to doubt it, I think that may have been a genuine example of New Testament tongues. There are very good and godly charismatic people who sincerely believe that their ecstatic utterances are the biblical gift of tongues. 
I'm not trying to demonize them or belittle them in any way. We just respectfully disagree on this issue. Okay, so what about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was predicted by the prophet Joel in, Old, in the Old Testament, and by John the Baptist, and by Jesus? What is that all about? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is about what we just read in verses 1 to 4, when on Pentecost of 30 or 33 AD, the Holy Spirit filled the believers and they spoke in languages they had never learned. They were also endowed with a boldness they had not previously had. This is what Jesus was talking about when he, predi when he predicted in Acts 1-5, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, most theologians believe that this was the birthday of the church, and I think they're right. Now, we might be tempted to think that this was a one-time event that happened only on Pentecost, but this phenomenon occurred again when the Spirit fell on the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and they also began speaking in languages they had never learned. Peter identified what happened to Cornelius and his family as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some disciples of John the Baptist living in Ephesus were probably also baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts 19 when they spoke in languages they had never learned. That raises the question, does it still happen today? Now, almost all conservative theologians would say yes, but they differ widely on what that means. Some charismatics believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens when you get saved and is always accompanied by speaking in tongues. And therefore, if you've never spoken in tongues, it is proof that you've never been saved. But many godly, dedicated Christians have never spoken in tongues. And even in the book of Acts, not everyone who gets saved is recorded as speaking in tongues. If speaking in tongues was an essential evidence of being saved, I'm sure Paul would have mentioned it, but he never does. So most charismatics would say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that comes sometime after we have been saved as a kind of second blessing. And that it is at that time that we will speak in tongues or ecstatic utterances. Unfortunately, this tends to create two classes of Christians. Ordinary Christians who have never spoken in tongues and the more spiritual Christians who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and have spoken in tongues. But Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians that just speaking in tongues does not mean you are more spiritual. Apparently, a lot of Corinthians spoke in tongues, and yet Paul called them carnal. Non-charismatics like me, on the other hand, point to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where Paul says, For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. Non-charismatics tend to think that Paul is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit here. Paul says that all believers have been baptized by the Holy Spirit at the moment they were saved, and that this happens whether they spoke in a foreign language or not, or whether they spoke in ecstatic utterances or not, or even whether they felt anything or not. I think Paul may also be referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Titus 3.5 when he speaks of the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is the point at which the Holy Spirit changes your heart and takes up permanent residence in your life and includes you into the body of Christ, whether you feel anything or not. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's true that there are times in Acts in which 
The baptism of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by speaking in languages that the person never learned. But that's not always the case. There are cases of people in Acts being saved, but there's no word of their speaking in tongues. Remember, Acts is a history book. It tells what happened. It doesn't necessarily tell what will continue to happen. There have been very godly and spiritually powerful men and women throughout history, people who have given their lives for Jesus, who have never spoken in tongues. And beside that, Paul speaks of tongues as a spiritual gift that some believers have and some don't. But as much as Paul talks about salvation, he never ties tongues to being saved. And again, I'm not condemning charismatics. Some of them are very godly and committed Christians. We just have to agree to disagree about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was. Last question. What is the filling of the Holy Spirit? At Pentecost, the believers were not only baptized by the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.4 makes it clear that they were also filled with the Holy Spirit. Later on, according to Acts 4.8 and 4.31, some of the same believers who had been baptized and filled by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost were later filled with the Holy Spirit again and again. So what's going on here? I believe that the baptism of the Spirit is a one-time occurrence in someone's life at the moment they get saved. It may or may not be accompanied by visible signs or feelings. Personally, I remember feeling a kind of euphoria when I got saved, but many people don't feel anything at all. The filling of the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is a sovereign work of God in which believers are endowed with boldness or empowered for some task or enabled to do things they would not ordinarily be able to do. In Exodus 28-35, to 35, for example, craftsmen are filled with the Holy Spirit and given remarkable skill, intelligence, and ability in crafting materials for the tabernacle. In the book of Judges, Samson was filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to bring down a pagan temple. The father of John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. John the Baptist himself was filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaimed the word of God powerfully and boldly. In Acts, some believers are filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in languages they've never learned. In Acts 19, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit in preparation for his very difficult ministry. A little more recently, an example is the story I once heard of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards lived in the early 1700s and was one of America's greatest theologians. He was also a preacher. I heard that he was not a very dynamic speaker and that he always read his sermons. Since his eyes were failing, he either had to look, hold the paper up close to his face or look down closely at the paper on his pulpit while he preached. He didn't get much response from his stoic, straight-laced New England congregation until one day things suddenly changed. There suddenly came a period of time when people would break into tears over their sins during the sermons, and sometimes people wouldn't even wait until an altar call before they came forward to publicly repent. The spiritual climate was thoroughly changed throughout the community. And then, weeks later, the revival just ended. Edwards hadn't done anything differently either before or after. It just seemed as if the Spirit of God suddenly and sovereignly began to move. And I would suggest that Edwards had been filled with the Holy Spirit during that time. 
The bottom line is this. In my view, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event that happens to all believers when they get saved. Regardless of whether there is any external signs or evidence or not, regardless of whether you feel anything or not. This is the point at which the Holy Spirit enters your life and remains in you and makes you part of the body of Christ. The filling of the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is a supernatural empowerment or enabling of the Holy Spirit, usually for some aspect of ministry or witness. It often results in boldness, but is not usually permanent. For example, although the disciples were given boldness at Pentecost, they were later afraid to meet Paul, the persecutor of Christians. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a sovereign work of God, which means that there is nothing we can do to make it happen. It may happen continuously or repeatedly over and over again. It may happen frequently or infrequently. It may happen almost never or maybe never in particular people's lives. It is entirely up to God. But I think we should pray for it and maybe even beg that God would give us his power and enablement for ministry and witness. Let's pray. Lord, what you did when you empowered Peter to speak boldly before the people who could have killed him, do it again in us. Give us that boldness. Lord, what you did when you filled and enabled the Apostle Paul to have faced enormous hardship, do it again in us. Give us that boldness. Lord, what you do in the lives of your people overseas, who constantly face persecution and even death, empower us with that endurance and boldness. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.